This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to another episode of Money and Markets. I'm Laura Souter. And today we're going to be delving into the latest jobs figures and what that might mean for the Bank of England's decision on interest rates next month. And I'll be giving an update on the latest government wrangling over pensioner pay. And of course, we'll be discussing the latest market moves. And I'm Danny Houston. We'll also be looking at the buy now, pay later market and how that has been changing ahead of tougher regulation. And we'll be talking about pop stars making millions from video games. But first up, let's look at those job figures which came out today and painted a pretty rosy picture of the jobs market, Danny. They did, Laura. Um, Just think back to when furlough was first introduced, when COVID restrictions forced businesses to close their doors. And many people thought that we were heading for a jobs disaster. Do you remember all that talk of a 10% unemployment figure? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, discussed at length, wasn't it? But... Even over the last few months, as the jobs market really seemed to hold up when vacancy numbers rose and businesses were telling us that they were struggling to find workers, there was still a niggling fear. Some thought that maybe it was all an illusion, that furlough was masking the true picture. And once the scheme ended, then we would start to see unemployment rise significantly. Well, furlough wound up finally at the end of September. At that point, there were an estimated 1.1 million people still on the scheme. So what happened to them? Well, the latest PayAYE estimates for the month of October saw 160,000 more people on the payroll than there were in September. Sounds like great news. However, there is a small note of caution here because if those on furlough were made redundant at the end of the period, then they'll still be on the payroll in the month of October because of redundancy pay. However, all things considered, it is looking pretty good, particularly when you consider that the number of jobs vacancies reached 1.17 million in October. Businesses still struggling to find workers and having to put up wages in order to tempt people in. Now, of course, that is something the Bank of England is going to be paying close attention to. And we know that because the Governor Andrew Bailey told MPs earlier this week he really struggled with his decision not to raise rates this month, that it was a close call for him. And of course, with the cost of living spiking and inflation expected to go as high as 5%, Well, could we see the change next month? We do get another lot of jobs figures two days before the bank meets in December. The expectation is if the situation is unchanged, if a slight slowdown in new vacancies that we've seen this month doesn't really bite, and if there wasn't a big jump in redundancies at the end of September, then the bank will be under pressure to put rates up. Now, there are a couple of caveats here. There are still global supply chain issues adding to inflation, which should be temporary. And frankly, it doesn't matter what the bank does when it comes to upward pressure there. But there's also the fact that a lot of these jobs, and there were 2.2 million people who started a new job between June and September, but lots of those were zero-hour contracts, according to the Office for National Statistics. 
And of course, remember Christmas demand, particularly this year, it can often skew the jobs market. So there are many who think that perhaps it would be more prudent for the bank to wait until early next year to make a change. I like how wary we all are of some slightly positive news, considering the past two years has just been an onslaught of negative data. But um, it's definitely put more pressure on the Bank of England and, and made it everyone all the more keenly watching for what they do next month, hasn't it? Yeah, we're sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop a little bit, aren't we? We, we just I don't think many people can quite believe how the jobs market has held up and and what we're seeing at the moment particularly when it comes you know to wage inflation so there is a note of caution but overall you know <laughs> it doesn't look bad and another positive piece of news this week um in if, as we switch over to markets news is that the UK had a big win as shell the big oil giant announced that it was moving its headquarters here Yeah, this is fascinating, Laura. Uh, Some, as you say, will see it as a vote of confidence in the UK economy and others as a way to avoid the Dutch dividend tax. But Shell's big plans for a massive overhaul will see a number of changes from, as you say, moving the headquarters to London to ditching the Royal Dutch from the title and simplifying its share structure. So instead of a dual share structure, It'll have just one, one lot of shares paid the same way, though it will still continue to have a dual listing. Let's talk about the narrative that the company is spinning. It wants to simplify, to be leaner and ready to really march towards a cleaner, greener shell, making it quicker for them to pay out to shareholders, and that includes share buybacks. Remember, they are fighting for investors. They've got a green problem. They're working on that, but they need to keep investors happy. Right now, if you look on the London Stock Exchange, you can see Shell A and Shell B. Shell A are mainly Dutch shares, and that system applies a 15% withholding tax on dividends, while Shell B are free of charges. Now, that structure has been in place since 2005, but it's increasingly become an issue, particularly after a US activist investor third point suggested the firm maybe should be split in two, the old with the legacy oil and gas sector and the other with the renewable arm. Now, Shell says the renewable move has to be funded by oil and gas money. And certainly, you know, over the last few months, with the oil and gas prices rising, you can understand that argument. That's where the growth is coming from, at least for now. In terms of investors, if this happens, there won't be too much change apart from the name. And I saw it's obviously uh, great news that the UK would kind of state that it, it's won in the battle for where the headquarters are going to be. But I saw when you draw down into the actual detail of it, um, I think a total of less than 20 jobs will actually move to the UK. So we're not talking entirely up, up sticking and moving and, and getting a massive office space um, as a result of the move, are we? No, no, it, it's it's a big move in terms of name and in terms of the UK being able to say, hey, look, you know, post-Brexit, we are still the place to base your business. But you're right, in terms of job creation, eh, not so much. And on to other big markets news of the week. I'm sure everyone listening has probably sampled a drink from drinks manufacturer Diageo. So they are behind the likes of Johnny Walker, Smirnoff and Guinness. But now they want to grab even more market share, don't they? 
yeah, 50% by the end of the decade, which is a pretty bold ambition, but it is already expecting net sales growth of at least 16% in the first half of its new financial year. Now, this is thanks to the fact that people are still buying its products in the supermarket and the fact that recovery is well underway in sales to bars, restaurants and hotels, which of course took a hit during COVID restrictions. Now, you mentioned some well-known brands there, Laura, but it's also been snapping up some younger brands like Casamigos and Aviation Gin, and its plan is to use its pretty smart marketing skills to grab consumer attention for those other brands and to grab attention right across the globe. Certainly, when you look at the last lot of Weatherspoon's earnings, it mentioned that cocktail sales had risen, and that's really part of the whole get back out there and live life to the full All those cocktail kits that came into the fore during lockdown, well, now people are out again and ready to live that best life, both off and on social media. Well, they're going for it. They're going for things like a a nice looking cocktail that they can be photographed with. So when you talk about this 50% lofty goal, yeah, you bet. But investors, they like lofty goals as long as they get delivered. And talking of global dominance, there's been a meeting of big global leaders this week. So China President Xi Jinping and US President Joe Biden met, albeit virtually. Um, How did markets react to that meeting? It wasn't a great deal of market reaction, and that's probably because there wasn't a great deal of progress. Now, despite the fact these virtual talks lasted three and a half hours, which was good because it was longer than had been anticipated, not very much seems to have come out of it. China's state media has used words like frank, constructive and fruitful. And we know from a US official that the talks included a whole range of subjects from Taiwan to trade. But, you know, these two sides, they've got pretty dug in positions when it comes to a lot of this. So just the fact that they've simply gone back over their positions might just be the opening salvo on the way to something more constructive. We know both leaders have said that they want to see tensions ease and and certainly a lot of coverage suggests that this latest meeting is an indication of an improvement of ties. They're seeking a way to negate the friction caused by differences. And we know that in the wake of COP26, that how to deal with climate change was also on the table. So a significant meeting, but also not significant at the same time. And that's why we haven't really seen many moves from markets. Um, Laura, we're going to shift from markets now, and we're going to look at some of the changes in the buy now, pay later market. And I'm always amazed when you go on and you buy something online now that quite often that is the first thing that comes up, an option to spread the cost. So what's been happening? It seems like every time you buy something, there's an option or at least or 20 different options of how to pay now rather than just debit or credit card. Um, Yeah, the buy now, pay later market has boomed. And so this is where you shop online and you have the ability to um, use credit from a buy now, pay later firm um, and then spread your cost over installments. So rather than paying for it all in one go, uh, you spread quite often across three different payments. Um, The logic is that it's easier for people online to then be able to overorder on things. So for example, if you're clothes shopping, you can order a few different sizes of things. You can return those things 
um, and you won't have to pay in the interim. Whereas if you use traditional forms of payment, you would have to pay for that and then wait for your refund. Um, so that was the logic initially. However, there's been a massive boom in the number of people using it. So it's estimated that four billion pounds um, of outstanding debt is sitting with buy now pay later firms um, at the moment, according to Credit Karna. And almost eight million people in the UK have significant outstanding balances with these firms. Um, examples are Klarna, uh, that's probably the biggest and best known one, um, Clear Pay and Layby. Uh, so it's been a booming market. Um, and it's not regulated at the moment. There are plans now for it to be regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, and there's a consultation out at the moment from the Treasury, uh, which closes in January next year on how that regulation should work and the changes that should happen in that market. But ultimately, what we're going to see is, we're, firstly, we're not going to see action for a while because we've got that consultation until January. And then there's always a delay in something happening and then a delay in it being implemented. Um, but Secondly, we're likely to see more of a crackdown on this market at the, the, the moment has kind of been allowed to operate as it likes. Ahead of that, some firms are being pretty savvy and are trying to um, perhaps clean up their ways a little bit ahead of any regulation. So, for example, Klarna, which is, um, as I said, one of the biggest and the best known, has already announced that it's launching a pay now option, uh, which might seem quite odd for a company that has only operated in buy now pay later um, but it's offering that as an option for people that don't want to take on credit but it's also probably more importantly talking about um, having clearer details when people buy so that they're aware of the kind of credit contract that they're getting into and what happens if they fall behind um, and also, they're going to carry out more debt checks. So one of the issues with buy now, pay later is that you could use the multiple different companies that offer it and end up with credit with all of these different companies. And it doesn't always show up on your credit file. So where traditionally you would have got a credit card and you would have been assessed as to whether you could have the capacity to take on more credit, um, that doesn't operate in this market. So that might be one of the changes that we'll see. Um, and people are now launching alternatives to buy now, pay later. So a company called New Day has just launched what it calls an alternative to buy now, pay later, which is integrated at the checkout. So it has the same ease of use at the checkout that buy now, pay later does. But you have one line of one line of credit with them, like a credit card. Um, so I think this is an example of how more traditional forms of credit like a credit card are having to adopt and become a bit more digitally savvy in terms of how they're integrated in that payment process to help attract younger people and also for kind of ease of use. Yeah, people do want it to be easy and and it is just making sure that you're safe and secure online as well makes some people think that, that maybe going down this option is, is a good way, but uh, it, it certainly bears watching. Uh, we've spoken on the podcast before about changes that are happening to the state pension following the pandemic, but another update in the saga, Laura? I know, it's like a never-ending pension story, but um, to give an update for those that aren't aware, the government's triple lock on the state pension, uh, which guarantees that earnings will increase, um, sorry, which guarantees that the state pension will increase by either the higher of inflation earnings or 2.5%. Um, 
That was temporarily scrapped for this year because the earnings figure came in at about 8% due to anomalies to do with COVID and earnings and wages during that time. Um, Instead, the government decided to increase it by uh, a particular month's measure of inflation, which was 3.1%. So it means that those on the state pension next year will see a 3.1% increase to their state pension um, rather than the potential 8% increase it could have been. Um, The House of Commons passed this. It went to the House of Lords. The House of Lords sent it back to the House of Commons um, and denied it. Now, the latest update is that the House of Commons have once again passed it through. So the House of Lords said that a different measure of earnings should be used. It agreed that the 8% figure was um, not really a real reflection of how much earnings have increased this year and was distorted by things like furlough. Um, However, it said that the MPs could come up with a more accurate earnings figure that could be used for the state pension, presumably that would be higher than the 3.1% rise that they are going to see. That argument has been rejected by the House of Commons. So there was hope for those on the state pension that they might see a slightly larger increase next year. But I think those hopes have been dashed. Now, the interesting thing is the 3.1% measure of inflation that was taken now looks pretty out of date because what we're seeing is rising inflation. We've got projections of inflation of 5%. And so Um, what state pensioners are justifiably arguing is that their increase to their effective pay um, isn't even going to keep pace with inflation. And when we look at things like energy costs going up dramatically, which pensioners typically spend more of their income on, um, we can start to see that actually in real terms, uh, those on the state pension are going to see a bit of a pay crunch this year. I know you're going to keep across that one. Um, In the wake of COP26, a lot of focus, understandably, on on how people can turn all aspects of their life greener, and that includes their finances. Uh, Laura, I went on my banking app this morning and was really intrigued to see that I can now look at my carbon footprint for whatever I've spent through my bank, uh, which is interesting. It's quite an eye-opener, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know how long they were looking at it for, but at the minute, my carbon footprint was pretty much zero. But then I haven't gone anywhere or, or done anything. So it'd be fascinating to see how it changes um, as I head out on trains or things like that. But I know that you've been speaking to newcomer bank uh, Triodos about what a green current account is and how ethical banking actually works. More people are seeking greener options for their money, um, but I think quite a lot of listeners might not have heard of Triodos Bank. So could you explain a bit about how you differ from kind of the bigger high street banks, maybe? Yeah, of course, it'd be be my pleasure. So we were founded in 1980 in the Netherlands and we're now a front runner in sustainable banking globally. And I think a few things that make us pretty unique, we only finance companies that um, that focus on people, the environment or the cultural sector. And we look at those companies to be really making a, a positive difference. Um, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of uh, is that we publish details of every organization that we finance on our website. So our customers constantly tell us that this is a real sort of positive feature that they see their money is delivering positive change. Um, And we've actually got an interactive map where you can go uh, and click on your local area to see what projects we support. We call that Know Where uh, where Your Money Goes. 
And um, last year, uh, we received um, a Queen's Award for, uh, for, for sustainability. We've also been um, uh, runner-up at the Best British Bank Awards. And, and we're a B Corp, which really, for us, is something that we're incredibly, uh, incredibly proud of. And essentially, we're an independent bank that promotes responsible and transparent banking. And like I said, we focus on making a difference to people and the planet. So do you offer kind of everything that people would expect from the, you know, the bigger banks, the HSBC and Barclays? Absolutely. So we've got a full range of savings products. We've got a personal current account. We've got a range of investment products. And we've also got a range of business accounts as well. Interesting. And so um, how do you make a current account ethical? How does how does your current account differ from somewhere else? And how is it kind of greener, I guess? Yeah, I think there's probably three things that make a current account ethical. And ultimately, banks do leverage the money which is in current accounts for lending. So I think people often you know, don't, don't realise this or don't, don't understand that. And so it really does, I guess, pay to see where your money goes. I think there's also a, a kind of a principle stroke moral compass question uh, around this as well. And, you know, clearly COP26 has brought some of these issues to, um, to, to life for people. But I think it's about um, partly how you lead through things like incentivization. So, for instance, at Triodos, we don't offer a bonus. There's no bonus culture. But it's also about what activities you finance as well and really um, focusing on the positive impact that we can have. So, for instance, Triodos doesn't um, invest in any fossil fuels, any arms, any alcohol, any tobacco. Uh, and therefore, you can be really reassured that if you've got a current account with um with Triodos, that we really are, you know, investing investing your money ethically. We're seeing a lot of what I'd call greenwashing coming into the market as well, with uh, accounts that are labelled as green because they're doing things like planting a tree or, um, you know, they're fossil fuel free. And I think these phrases can be really, really misleading. And there's quite a, I think, a thin line between misleading and, and mis-selling, because ultimately, you know, whilst the tree might be planted in your name, those banks, some of them are still funding deforestation or fossil fuel companies or single use plastics. And that, for me, is something that's really important, is that the lending practices um, that a bank operates can have the biggest impact and are, for me, the biggest differentiator and for Triodos as to why our account is ethical. That's so interesting, isn't it? And it's, I think, probably quite hard for consumers to navigate um, these different levels of ethical, I guess, and, and to dig into what banks are actually doing and I want to talk in a bit about how you kind of pick your projects and how you decide what are sustainable or ethical products but while we're talking about um, the current account it's probably worth mentioning here that you have to pay for the current account with you guys so it's about three pounds a month and that's quite different to what a lot of other banks offer and maybe it's a bit of a different mindset for people to get into so how receptive are people to that fee? I, and thanks for pointing this out, because one of our key values is absolutely around transparency. And what we're seeing is almost a 20% year on year growth of our customer base. So, our, you know, our customers are telling us that they are willing to pay that current account fee and that they, they really get it. And I go back to a 2016 um, CMA, the, uh, the, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority um, research into the true cost of bank accounts. 
And um, what that said is the true cost of a, running a bank account was around about £66. So our monthly fee goes towards the cost of running the account and is ultimately shared equally by all our current account customers. And we've got no hidden fees. And if I think about the way that the current account market really operates, often what happens is that the, um, the few subsidize the many. So what do I mean by that? Um, if I look back at the historic rates that people have been charged for overdrafts, which are now up at 39.9% APR, that is a model which is subsidizing having a free, if in credit, current account. And so we think that actually sustainable banking means that, um, one, the costs are shared equally. Two, we're absolutely transparent about what those costs are so that people can you know, make their own decision. Um, but also, that does mean that we um, we do need to make sure that we're a profitable organisation. I think that's the truest definition of a you know of a of a of a, um, of a sustainable organisation. And I look at it and think you know some of the challenger banks, for instance, have have never made a profit. And so um, I yeah you know, I look at the kind of current growth trajectory that Triodos is on as an organization and I, I'm grateful for the fact that people no longer want to compromise on their values and that they're ready and willing to pay for it. Yeah it's really interesting and so you talk about the big growth in in your kind of customer base and the number of people moving over to you and we hear a lot about there's a focus on a lot of younger people making greener lifestyle choices whether that's kind of in their diet or their travel habits or um, other things. Is that actually a fast growing area of your customer base or are you seeing it across all age groups? Yeah it's a, it's a huge area of growth for, um, you know, for, for us right now. And I think younger generations are realizing that moving your money is probably one of the most powerful choices um, that you can make because it can really drive, you know, measurable social environmental change. And and actually, this is this is people now, I think, exercising the kind of democratic power of um, of their money as well. Um, we did some recent polling and um, what it shows is that our customers are more motivated by major events to use their their their, their money for good. Um, you know, COP has been really inspiring people to use their money in a more sustainable way. Um, people are, are really genuinely exploring sustainable living and, and sustainable lifestyles. And and actually, if I just take a step back for a moment, our current account was intended to make make us more accessible to a younger demographic. And that's why we see the fastest growth in our customer base of, um, of customers aged 25 to, to, to 34 in the current account space. But our demand for sustainable investments is also being boosted by that younger generation. Um, and we see all uh, of all first time investors, 65 percent of them um, uh, are 18 to 34. So, you know, we're really seeing that younger demographic kind of really engaging with the issues of the day. The issue is that there's a high level of scepticism over the ethical credentials um, that are on offer in the marketplace. Uh, and, and our polling showed that eight out of 10 uh, customers and consumers think that banks should be more transparent about where people's money goes to avoid greenwash. Yeah, I think as we get more focus on greener options, and this is the case across not just finance and banking, but um, all industries, you get more people offering products in that market. And then it's kind of harder for the end consumer to 
work out what's best aligned with their goals or what is true kind of ethical and and green versus others and i think i think when particularly maybe older customers think of an ethical bank they probably think of um the co-op because that's been around for a long time and that kind of was badged as the kind of ethical um bank for a while so how how are you different from that if someone's trying to weigh up between those two options yeah i and i think that's a really fair question um and i think we're actually quite different to co-op um they're known for their exclusion approach and we have this too uh and we call this our, our minimum standard so I kind of mentioned it earlier around no weapons, no tobacco, no fossil fuels, no animal testing. But I think where we really differ is that we take a positive approach to lending and that we offer 100% transparency on where our customers' money goes. And I think this word's a really interesting word, but um, we don't actually use the word ethical um, to describe to describe us and what we do. It's a, it's a very personal word, actually. And, and where we differ, I think, is that our focus is on sustainability. And I guess when consumers are making choices, like you said, they're actually quite difficult to see the wood for the trees often. Um, and so we make sure that we align to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and that drives our level of, um, of holistic thinking. And I think one of the things that's been a kind of common trend over the last year 18 months is that the term ESG is also pretty dangerous as well and ESG obviously standing for environmental social or governance principles and it's pretty much a bare minimum Um, and what we're seeing particularly in in investment funds you know funds kind of rebadging overnight as ESG funds uh, and that ultimately um, those those investments are just really what they were the night before but pretty much you know rebadged and ESG really is a it's a sort of a bare minimum I think and the true kind of you know drive for us as an organization is to um, is to talk about impact investing which brings about kind of real positive change and so that's where I think that we you know we we differ from both the market and also co-op. And so you talked a bit up there about um, some of your exclusion policies and things that you would never invest in but um, how do you pick the businesses because presumably you have more people approaching you for for funding and lending um, than you can meet. So how do you pick those businesses? And do you, do you have any kind of examples that, that really sum up the kind of business that, that you guys would give money to? Yeah, sure. And I think, um, as I said earlier, we really focus on environmental, cultural um, and, and, and social themes. Uh, and, you know, clearly these cover quite a, a broad range of, of sectors. So to bring that to life, that looks like renewable energy, organic farming, social housing. <clears throat> We've got very clearly defined criteria for our, um, our lending decisions which I hope therefore makes us accountable to both our, our kind of savers and investors. Um, we operate a team of relationship managers. So that ultimately means that we really get to know our customers really, really well, and that we can be pretty explicit and level with them about the values that we expect them to be operating within and, and the challenges that they face to transition to a, you know, a net zero future um, to, to kind of bring that to life. Uh, some of the companies we help support, um, Ecotricity, uh, Neil's Yard Remedies, Cafe Direct, they're just some of the examples. Um, and uh, yeah, some of the projects that we've financed recently, if I think about a really innovative project up, uh, up in Scotland, 
We helped finance Ember buses to purchase two electric coaches. And they're running the first um, direct route between Dundee and Edinburgh. And then if I think uh, more about some of the electric charging for um, electric vehicles, we recently provided money to support the development of 400 charging points across the UK uh, in supermarkets. So, uh, you know, I think it's that really close relationship manager approach, really talking to customers openly and honestly about the kind of the values that we um, that we expect and having very sort of strict criteria about what we will do and won't do in the sectors that we're really focused on. Amazing. That's so helpful. Thank you so much for explaining all that and joining us. My absolute pleasure. And finally this week, most parents will have heard of Roblox as their children will have played on it. But Jenny Owen is here to explain what exactly it is and with news of a pop star who's making some pretty big bucks off it, Jen. Yeah, you may have heard of online game Minecraft, but its new rival called Roblox has earned a pop star a pretty penny. If you have kids, you may have heard of it before. It's essentially an online community where you can create an avatar of yourself and play more than 50 million games created by users themselves. It's kind of like YouTube, but games instead of videos. Now, Roblox has around 100 million monthly active users, and in the UK, 1.5 million under 18s regularly log in. If you want to give your avatar accessories, you can convert cash into a virtual currency called Robux and pay to dress up avatars or decorate locations. Swedish uh, singer Zara Larsson first teamed up with Roblox Gaming Universe to host an online dance party where her avatar performed a concert with her singing, of course, and gamers could buy outfits, sunglasses, hairstyles, and even copy her avatar's dance moves in exchange from Robux. Prices started at less than a pound and quickly added up. Since joining the platform in May, she's earned more than $1 million from Roblox itself. Now, that's not bad for some digital merchandise. Now, I have to say that I have two teenagers in my house who regularly use Roblox. And mm. the calls for, can, can we have some Robux, please? Uh, constant, absolutely constant. <laughs> and... What's quite tricky is I like them to buy things which are tangible. I'd rather they either save their money, please, or or buy something which I can see them using. But how do you tell them when it's their pocket money and they've done really well and that's the only thing that they want? How do you say, no, you can't have that because yeah. I try? <laughs> tricky because when I had a look it's basically like Lego it's, it kind of looks like Lego but on on your computer so um, it's, a, it's a little bit distant from what I remember but it must be a tricky one to to figure out. It is particularly because of all the communities that they get involved in and, and there's a bit of the sort of you know the Joneses whole thing where you know, my friend has got this can I have it too? <laughs> Mm, yeah, absolutely. However, they have not made a mint like Zara Larson. Um, I'm going to have to have words with them and see if they can come up with something. Uh, that is all for this week. Please join us again next week. Dan and Laura are going to be chatting to our very own Leith Kalaf, and I'll be speaking to Jerry Polacek and Matt Ordway from Ecofin, who run the US Renewables Energy Investment Trust, about investing in green power and why they've just bought a wind farm in Texas. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. 
and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.